Listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we're talking with the legendary guitarist Steve Cropper, a member of Booker T and the MGs and the Blues Brothers Band. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. But first, some new music. That is a track called Back of My Mind, the title track from the debut album from Her. That's H-E-R, all in caps, uh, the uh, nom de soul for (laughs) Gabriella Wilson, a biracial singer from San Francisco. Her has had a uh, a kind of a circuitous route to her current career. She uh, started recording under her real name for a number of years then sort of dropped that whole persona and and uh, dubbed herself her in 2016 she put out a series of EPs that were then issued on a couple of compilation records the 2019 second compilation album called I used to know her got some grammy recognition and uh, she's ended up having a pretty big year so far she started to emerge as a major force in the R&B and soul realms, uh, playing some major festivals when that was a thing, when you could actually play festivals. Mm-hmm. Uh, got a lot of notoriety for not only being a great vocalist, but also a great guitar player. Um, in February, she sang uh, America the Beautiful at the Super Bowl, nationally televised event, obviously. Got a lot of attention there. She won a Grammy for I Can't Breathe, a, uh, a protest song that she wrote in response to George Floyd's murder. That was back in March uh, for the uh, the Grammy, and then the following month, April, she collected an Oscar for "Fight for You" from the uh, the film Judas and the Black Messiah. So, uh, lots of high profile events lining up for her. Now she has her what is she's dubbing as her first official solo album, a full length release called "Back of My Mind." Twenty one tracks spread over seventy nine minutes. Jim, a number of producers, including uh, Drake collaborator Hit Boy. Kay Trinata, uh, Rihanna hitmaker, uh, Mike Will Made It. Uh, these are some big names in, in the uh, industry. But, uh, you know, this, this woman has had an amazing run so far as a solo artist, and uh, it's, it's uh, fascinating to see what comes next. This is a track called Bloody Waters from her's debut solo album called Back of My Mind on Sound Opinions. Bloody Waters Every day, every day Feels like I'm running in slow motion And I'm losing the race Ooh, so frustrating Ooh, keep on taking Ooh, corporate races Ooh, got me praying Cause all I hear is 
Bloody Waters from Back of My Mind, the name of the album, Her, is the artist, H-E-R, with periods, all caps. Um, this is a very impressive album, at least the first third of it. <laughs> 21 tracks, it easily could have been 12 and would have been better at 12. We have some of the common mistakes that plague a lot of soul R&B albums these days. There's way too many uh, guest spots. Uh, uh, during the best of them, uh, Gabby Wilson does not cede uh, too much of the song. Others, you know, I never need to hear Chris Brown on a record again. There are other names, Little Baby and Young Blue. I, you know, I don't need them. Um, she is a great singer. Uh, she is uh, very expert at, at creating a smooth, sensual, enticing mood. It is uh, Lauren Hill in a lot of ways, but even more accomplished. She's a better singer. There's nothing with the fire of I Can't Breathe or Fight For You, those two uh, really political tracks that preceded this full album. And that's surprising, given that we have 79 minutes and, and 21 songs. It gets to be a little samey. It's in a, a very uh, languid groove uh, for almost the entirety of this record. I do love the opening track, We Made It. It is my favorite on here. kind of goes downhill after that. Uh, again, you know, as an EP, it would have been killer. As an album of 12 songs, uh, it would have been very good. But wow, uh, as it is, I think it gets stuck in a rut, Greg. Well, uh, you know, I hate to say I agree with you, but I agree with you. You know, that track I played, Bloody Waters, I love that track. That's deeper in the record, that deep bass undertow in that song. Uh, it did remind me a lot of uh, what's going on, Marvin Gaye. You know, mm. there's there's a reference there. You mentioned Lauren Hill. There's a sample of uh, Lauren Hill uh, on Cheat Code. She's obviously a major influence. Her whole thing is kind of a quiet storm mode. You know, that early 80s R&B trend where it was kind of like sensual uh, bedroom music, very well-produced kind of music. Her yeah. voice can certainly deliver that. She has obviously no neo-soul influences, the Lauren Hill influences there. The wild card for me is that she is a really, really good guitar player. I've seen her at yes. festivals, and it's just stunning to see. Um, and I'm, I'm particularly pointing out a couple of tracks on this record, We Made It and Don't, where you can really hear that guitar in the forefront. Uh, the solos at the end of uh, We Made It in particular are you know, really just bring that song out and you go, wow, who's playing that guitar? Well, it's her. It, it is kind of uh, Prince-level guitar playing. very good and uh you know the, these are the things that make her distinctive i like it when she changes things up a little bit just the stripping things down to the acoustic guitar and her voice on like a track like hard to love or for anyone honestly i wish i never met you mm. but a lot of the tracks uh deal with romantic turmoil and we keep hearing that sort of those same themes over and over again and it does sort of blend together so here's a record that clearly could have benefited from some stronger editing uh the eps were a great way to launch her career yeah uh, four eps that i think each work in their own way and uh, she might go back to that format in the future i hope she does because a little more concision would not hurt this artist at all great talent 
I think she's uh, got a tremendous future in the music world, but uh, this record is maybe too much of a good thing. That is a track called Back of My Hand. It kicks off a new album called Doomin' Sun by a new uh, duo called Bachelor. Greg, uh, we are talking about two uh, very talented young women from the indie pop world. Uh, Melina Duterte was the leader of an act uh, called J-Som, and uh, Ellen Kempner led a band from Brooklyn called Pale Hound. They have said, it's not a band, Bachelor, it's a friendship. And uh, this collaboration is the result of having rented a uh, isolated house in Topanga, California for a couple of weeks in January 2020, before we were all isolated on our own uh, for the rest of 2020. And uh, they're playing together. It is guitar. It is bedroom. It is indie. It is underground. It is uh, harmonies and some really interesting melodies that jump out of the mix at times. I want to play a track. Uh, There's a lot to talk about in the music, and we'll give our opinions when we come back. This is Stay in the Car by Bachelor from Doom and Sun. Stay in the car from the new Bachelor record, Doom and Sun. Uh, that's one of my favorite tracks on the record, Jim. I'm yeah. glad you picked that one. It's a it's a, a person goes into the store and shoplifts and runs out of the store and tries to escape. I mean, it's kind of like this little little scenario, and it's very exciting the way they sort of build the whole little movie in your mind of what's going on in this particular robbery scheme, this couple running off, you know. Well, and while while, while putting the uh, shoplifted groceries in the trunk, somebody is observing this and kind of falling in love (laughs) with this this character. Right, exactly. That's the twist they put on uh, these particular songs. They're very intimate. Their voices blend very well. You can understand why these two have sort of had a immediate simpatico for each other. They, they definitely complement one another. Um, this is a record that could have easily been, you know, it was basically just the two of them in this isolation recording that there was a couple of other musicians on the record, but largely they play most of the instruments here, do all the singing, obviously the songwriting. But it's not a lo-fi bedroom kind of record. It, no. I was really surprised at how developed the songs are. The arrangements are very full and the range. Um, and speaking of uh, the contrast to the Her record, which is uh, 80 minutes, nearly 80 minutes long, this record's very concise. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's just a really nice, lean uh, presentation of their songs. Ten and, songs, and, no, and, no filler. Exactly. And no filler is exactly right. I don't think there's a weak track here because they're all very well uh, thought out. Uh, you know, a track like Sand Angel, this hush and haunted landscape that they're creating in, in very intimate terms. To 
to a, a track like, you know, Spin Out, you know, where, where things are getting a little bit more frantic, or Stay in the Car. They expand to the full dynamic range of the kind of music they're referencing, which is basically, let's face it, it's 90s alt-rock. You know, Shoegaze. They, are, they were born during that era, so they're all coming to this as sort of a secondhand influence. But, you know... I could have seen Veruca Salt, the two two uh, women in Veruca Salt, making a record like this someday if they well, just sort yeah, of packaged, you know, escaped to an Airbnb and recorded for two weeks. There's much know? more My Bloody Valentine. Um, uh, you know, as we gave Gabby Wilson props for being a fantastic guitarist, I think we have to mention that Melina Duterte and Ellen Kempner are great guitarists, and the squalls of My Bloody Valentine-like noise uh, that they can create when these songs hit their peaks... Also, the very hushed, quiet uh, uh, build-ups to that, uh, combined with the harmonies and those kind of somnambulant vocals. Yeah. I woke you up at four in the morning. I just had an idea. Record this vocal now. Yeah. Right? And you're not quite awake yet. Um, and thematically, I think uh, the, the album is, is fascinating. Stay in the Car is kind of an outlier in some ways. I think um, most of the album is about, uh, and I think everyone of every orientation and age and gender can relate to this, right? We've all had that, uh, that crush, and you finally work up the cur- mm. courage to act on it. You know, and and I, you know, I'm I'm really kind of like I really like you, you know, like <laughs> like you, right? And you get this line in response: "Oh, I thought we were just friends." Mm-hmm. That's kind of what the entire album is about. And they have been very circumspect about whether, when they've said it's not a band, it's a friendship. Are they talking romantic? Are they what? What are they talking about? I don't think we need to know. Uh, but there is a love there, and and a lot of the themes are about how easily love and friendship can can get blurred Mm -hmm. um again fantastic just fantastic guitar work throughout and both of these bands made a big impact almost four years ago 2017 uh jay and pale hound and and they're great on their own i've gone back and dug deep but they're even better together you know hugely ambitious and i hope that this wasn't a one-off collaboration yeah very unconventional songs uh with very accessible melodies so very strongly in favor of this bachelor record not so favorable on the the her debut album although it it has some really promising moments so what do you think of the latest from her and bachelor we want to hear your opinions let us know in our facebook group or in our patreon community or you can leave us a voice message on our website soundopinions.org coming up our conversation with guitarist steve cropper on sound opinions And we are back. This week, we're talking to another legendary sideman, guitarist and producer Steve Cropper. Beginning in the late 1950s, Steve Cropper was a session guitarist for Stax Records in Memphis, which put him on tracks by Wilson Pickett, Otis Redding, and Sam and Dave, among many others. And that's just scratching the surface of his long and fascinating career. It also includes songwriting, producing, and being a member of the Blues Brothers band Immortal in that film Greg. At 79 years old, Steve Cropper is still at it. He has a new solo album out now called Fire It Up. Steve, welcome to Sound Opinions. 
My pleasure. Glad to be here. Steve, uh, new solo album. We can't put those words together in too many sentences. Steve Cropper, new solo <laughs> album. You do every other album, but your solo albums are few and far between. You know, the music changes from time to time. I haven't changed any. Changed clothes every now and then. That's it. <laughs> what were you going for with Fire It Up? Uh, dance music. Mm. It's all about dance music. There's one medium tempo in there, and that's about it. It'll still make you want to get up and dance. Oh, Bo- booty shaking music, huh? Yeah, that's what it is. Booty shaking music. <laughs> <laughs> you uh, made a pretty good record with Felix Cavallari of uh, the Young Rascals in 2008. And it sounds like a lot of this, uh, the genesis for this record was from that. That is a good album. I've listened to one time since we did it, a lot of different grooves on there. I, the grooves on uh, the dedicated album, The Five Orioles, those songs were written, some of them in the 40s. Mm-hmm. I kind of patted myself. They said, who do you like as a guitar player? Well, there's a lot of great ones. But Loman Paul and I'm, I'm, I think I've patted myself after him more than anybody else. Him and Bo did the problem. The Five Royals guy. People don't know who I'm talking about when I say Lumber Pollen. They don't know who I'm talking yeah. about. But the, the Five Royals, they don't know either. Hank Brown and the Midnighters every now and then, maybe. But that's who I grew up listening to. Yeah. I, I think the Five Royals story is great because I think you kept their name alive um, uh, long after people, a lot of people had forgotten about them, and, and, and Loman Pauling especially. Uh, and they finally, I think they got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in large measure because of your championing them. How did you discover the Five Royales, Steve? Uh, I grew up on it in school. That's what the kids were dancing to when I grew up in high school in the 50s. Mm. And the other famous story is, uh, as a real young man, you wandered into the black church and you discovered gospel in Memphis. How old were you then? Uh, about 10, 11, I guess. What did it do? Yeah. To, what did it say to you? What, what spoke to you? Uh, just the feeling. It was coming from for real from the feeling. Mm. And, uh, you know, I grew up in a church, so it's the same deal. But uh, I grew up in a church that doesn't allow uh, bands and music, musical instruments and that kind of thing. Yeah. So it was more a cappella. But, uh, you know, the gospel music, I started patterning those, doom, 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 those kind of rhythms, you know, mm-hmm. guitar. Mm-hmm. And I went to a couple of concerts and, and heard some, you know, I didn't, went to one and. Uh, over to Central, and they had probably 15 or 20 church bands, gospel groups. Mm. And I sat there and just, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anytime I could play something with that groove, it was great. And I only know one song that I really, I guess I patterned myself after or stole it or whatever I did is, I'm not tired. I've been loving you a long, long time, and I'm not tired. Mm. But they will stick it. the same thing i just hung (laughs) (laughs) so we're talking like three minutes and you've mentioned the word groove 16 times you know people want to always pick apart your style right and finger picking and telecaster and clean and this and that but it really all comes down to groove for you doesn't it i think so yeah dance music Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah i say i did i didn't do anything but i was just part of one fourth of something 
uh, the band Booker Ten MGs, the backup band at, at Stax, took a guy like Albert King and took old blues songs and made them dance songs, and all of a sudden they hit. Yeah, and he was, you know, getting royalty checks and royalty statements that he'd never seen before. Yeah. <laughs> even the slow blues things, the yeah. old blues songs, even the slow ones had a groove to them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that you amplified that. You give it a little message, right? Or something, and it's coming from here. It's all intentional, but uh, so you got the gospel influence. The guitar came a few years after that. What was there a spe- specific reason that you picked up the guitar when you were a, a teenager? You know, I, I've been asked that many times. I don't know what made me pick it up. I, all I relate to is the first one I ever played belonged to my uncle, even though he didn't play guitar. He played piano and violin or fiddle, and that was his thing. And he used to have these uh, sing up. Everybody would come over on Sunday afternoon. They'd gather around a piano and sing songs and all that. And every now and then, I was told that a guy would show up and says, well, "You know, I'd love to be playing, but I don't have a guitar." So he bought one for him. So they mm-hmm. never had that excuse again. He just handed me a guitar. So I I went to my aunt and said, can I get out the guitar when I was staying with him? And she said, yeah, I guess so. And I played like a rubber band. I just sat there and thump it. So I, maybe that had something to do with it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And the first song I heard that I really got inspired by, a friend of mine, Ed Bruce, sang this song, Bo Diddley. And I said, man, how do you learn to play like that? He said something real profound and simple. Get a guitar and learn how to play it. So I did. <laughs> I might have signed an extra pair of shoes and mowed a couple of extra yards, uh, yards, you know, to sort of saving the money. I was setting bowling pins and anything I could do to wreck enough money to get seventeen dollars by the guitar. You were basically self-taught then. I learned by doing too. That's, and I get accused of being a guitar player. I don't think I am, but uh, I'm holding one a lot. I play well, a lot of sessions. You know, inevitably, Steve, these lists come out, and these lists are always stupid. You know, 100 greatest guitar players, 50 greatest guitar moments, blah, blah, blah. And you're always on there. I was wondering, does, do you put any stock in that? Uh, I don't know. If I'm on there, I'm on there. I don't know why I'm on there sometimes. There are other great guitar players that aren't on that list. I go, how come they left him off? Well, I yeah. don't know. Yeah. And there's a lot of names on there I never heard before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean they're not great. That means nothing that I haven't heard them because I don't. I don't go to a lot of concerts, a lot of live music things. If it didn't play it on the radio, I probably didn't hear it. I never was an album collector. Never really, was. really? Do you have, you don't even have copies of the records you played on? <laughs> no. Wow. A lot of records I don't play on. If I hear it on the radio, I hear it on the rest of it. Wow, that's great. That's me playing. Yeah. <laughs> I love them looking at my kids. That's your daddy. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, I, don't, I don't get any thrill out of hearing myself back now. Hmm. But if something makes it on the radio, every time I hear it, I go, wow, that, oh, we did the right thing on the session on that day. That yeah. never gets old, huh? That never gets old. Yeah. Not hearing it on the radio, though. What about the songwriting, Steve? Where did that come from? Because you wrote so many great songs and the head arrangements, everybody knows about those, but what, what inspired uh, the songwriting part of it? You help people do something and you get credit for it. That's pretty cool. Oh, come on. Come on. Uh, we're talking We're talking sitting on the dock of the bay, one of the greatest songs. It is. I've been accused of songs. Somebody else wrote them and you took them. I said, no, I didn't. I never took one nickel from anybody. Mm-hmm. I didn't contribute to the song. The title, the lyrics, or something, the music. I've just, you know, the thing at Stacks was, you know, we as Booker T and MGs as backup artists shared a certain amount of money uh, for mm-hmm. every single that came out there. You know, not like an artist or anything, but we did get a little bit from it. Mm-hmm. 
a lot of studio musicians don't get anything yeah. except what they get yeah. paid to play on. Can we ask you about some of those songs? What you remember about uh, co-writing sure, or contributing? Sitting on the dock of the bay, Otis Redding. I mean, one of the greatest songs I think in pop music history. Period. What do you do? How did it work with Otis? One of the biggest things about the dock of the bay, I think, was the bass line. Hmm. And I tell the story. I said when I was showing the band the song the next morning, Donald Duck Dunn started playing one. Dun, 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 dun. That is a line that was probably written in the 30s or 40s. Who knows? But uh, but Duck played it and played it like Donald Duck Dunn played it. So he made it pretty famous. Watching the ships roll in. Well, so Duck launches the song uh, with that bass. What does Steve okay. Cropper bring to it? The thing that made me play those licks, I have no idea other than the fact that I was trying on you know, some of those licks to do trills like birds would make. And it didn't quite get it. I got that idea from outtakes of Otis. He was clowning around, making sounds like like he thought were gulls. He sounded like a dead crow to me, a dying crow. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't heard that on any box <laughs> set yet. Gulls <laughs> don't. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's pretty incredible. I've talked to you in the past about songwriting, Steve, and it seemed like it was very much a collaborative process, people in the room going back and forth. You know, and, and it makes you make it sound relatively effortless, but were there songs that took a long time to, to, to shape, or were they pretty much done in a, in a few hours or a few days? Well, like Dock of the Bay, that was a song that Otis brought in, like every other song, unfinished. Just a verse, an intro and a verse, and that was about it. So I have always said that if you see uh, any song by Otis that says Redding, a cropper, cropper, Redding, whatever, listen to the lyrics. It's always about him. Somewhere in that song, it's about him. Listen, mm -hmm. 2,000 miles I roam Just to make this dock my home And he was bigger than life. He was easy to write about. <laughs> so he's, he's got one verse. Where was everybody in the studio riffing with him and, and he's writing on the spot? A lot of songs were written on the spot. I don't recall too many of them. Mm -hmm. Most of the songs, most of the hits were written the night before. What about Wilson Pickett, Midnight Hour? All right. We wrote the night before the session, we wrote three songs together. And, uh, you know, In the Midnight Hour was my idea, and that was his thing. And he had, uh, don't fight it, you got to feel it. Hmm. Don't fight it, you got to feel it. Feel it. That was pretty much finished when he showed it to me. And the other one, I'm not tired, which I mentioned earlier, the old gospel song. That's something I, at the end of the night, I said, uh, well, let's write a gospel song or a gospel type song. Where you lead me, you know I'll follow. And all you do is change the lyrics. I said, if God's going to kill me, he's going to hit me by lightning before noon. <laughs> <laughs> Blasphemy. I've been loving you a long, long time, and I'm not tired. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you, you seem to have certain things that inspire you to write. Tell, tell us about, because there's uh, not one, not two, but three uh, songs on the new album, Fire It Up, called Bush Hog. Yeah, well, a lot of people don't, don't know what a bush hog is. 
I didn't know what a bush hog was till I read your bio. Okay, I'm <laughs> You're talking to a guy who moved from Jersey to Chicago. It's a piece of farm equipment that's big enough to knock down bushes, to cut bushes down rather than grass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Bigger swath, and it's just a big giant farm piece of lawnmower is all it is. Mm-hmm. You hook on the back of a tractor and you bush hog. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> you know, when the brush and all and grass gets waist high, knee high, waist high, you start to get out your bush hog, put it down so the Get out your bush hog, Greg. You got a lawn. Oh, yeah. And to get around that, some guys know these they, big horn sheep and all that will clean up yard or whatever and just eat the grass down to nothing. It's perfect. So a lot of golf courses have that. Huh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what made you want it? What was there something about the lick uh, that, that evoked the bush hog? Or did you set down to write an instrumental that sounded like what a bush hog was? Or just a cool word? <laughs> no, I have no idea. The song itself, all instrumentals are tracks until the day you mix them and you have to release them and then you have to come up with a title for them. Ah. Uh, and that was every Booker T record was done that way. All those things were just track one, track two, track three, track four, and it'd be the date on it and what it was called. This particular one, Bush Hog, was, was named, and I had to have uh, John Tiven. I said, play me that, send me a copy of that song we did that time. And uh, he finally found it, and it was named the way he titled it was the name of the loop that we played to. Hmm. Of course, we couldn't use that on the album because it's already copyrighted. So, yeah. right. So, Bush Hog itself has had three titles: <clears throat> the original, and then there was another one, and then I came up with that one. So, okay. Well, All right. Well, that's one. It sounds now like Bush Hog's what it should have been from day one. It's a funky instrumental, I can tell you that. Yeah. And yeah. it does prove. <laughs> Coming up, we continue our conversation with Steve Cropper and discuss another funky instrumental, Green Onions. Plus, we'll hear what he remembers from being a blues brother. That's next on Sound Opinions. And we are back. This week, we're talking with guitarist Steve Cropper. Let's return to our conversation about the process Booker T and the MGs used for writing those classic instrumentals. So you're saying that with Booker T, you were basically writing these instrumentals, and then afterwards, somebody would come up with a title for that song. Usually, the, the day we mixed it is the day we came up with the title. When, when Booker was involved, I would call Booker, and I said, okay, I've got everything mixed. It's time to put this record out. We need to title these things. Okay, we settle on some things. There's one song, and Booker says, I, I've got a great name for this instrumental. I said, what's that? He said, Pedal pushers. I said, Booker, what about uh, hip huggers? He said, yeah, hip huggers. Let's call it hip huggers. I said, we can call it that if you let me spell it. So I spelled it hip, H-I-P dash her, hip hug her. Ah, there you go. There you go. Hip hug her. Well, so the day before you're mixing or the day you're mixing, who says uh, green onions? Well, there's a story behind Green Onions. That one came about a little bit different. So uh, (laughs) I caused, I guess, a little bit of commotion because I was real good friends with a guy, and I used to go by his drive time and stay there until I had to leave to go to the record shop. And I used to hang out with him all the time. And so the day after that we cut the Green Onions, the track, I had Scotty Moore cut me a dub of it. And I had it with me on on a Wednesday. and. so I said, Ruben, listen to this. 
And I said, I had Scotty yesterday cut me a little double on this. Tell me what you think. And he played about six bars of it, stopped it, backed it up. And I said, what, you don't like it? And he said, no, I just want to make sure I've heard what I heard. That sounds pretty good. What I didn't know, he put it out on the air. And while the song is playing, <laughs> the phones are playing. Oh. <laughs> no group name, no title name or nothing. So when I got back to the record shop, <laughs> Miss Saxon says, we got a lot going on here, and I bet you were responsible for it. And I said, you're not talking about this, are you? <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh. So she called her brother, Jim Stewart, at the bank and said, when you take your lunch break, you better get to the studio because we got something going on you need to know about. So when he found out all the information from that morning and all, he said, we got to get this record out, and we got to get a name of a group and the name of this song. I said, okay. So, and uh, Al Jackson, the drummer, named the, the, the blues side to Behave Yourself. Hmm. You better behave yourself. Just behave yourself, and that makes sense. So Louis Stein, we're all up in the control room playing the track back, and Louis Steinberg, who played bass on it at the time, he said, "Let's call it Onions." Why you want to call it that? He said, "Because that's the stankingest music I ever." <laughs> and I said, "Well, okay, that's pretty cool." But I said, "You ever think about Onions? Some people get indigested from it. Other people they cry when they cut one open and all that kind of stuff." I said, what about green onions? Because everybody has green onions pulled out of the yard or the garden and has them on their, on their plate. And no, I've never seen anybody get sick from it. Mm -hmm. And he said, uh, they said, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's call it green onions. Okay, so we call it green onions. <laughs> Don't want to offend anybody. He was not an onion fan. <laughs> no, we didn't offend anybody. The other thing was Booker T and the MG. Booker T because Booker T. Jones played on it, you know. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, the MGs was named after the car. We already had the Triumphs and there were other bands out, you know, with car names and all of that. So shortly after that record was released, Jim received a letter from the lawyers of British Motors saying, we don't want to be connected with anything musical. Mm. Okay. So he called everybody and said, guys, we've got to re-release this record and change the names. So we're not changing anything. Well, you got to change it because we got a letter here from a lawyer. So we named it the Memphis Group. We've never changed anything. Booker T and the MGs. The only thing wrong with that, I said, you, now you've made it plural. It's Booker T and the Memphis Groups. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if Booker and I did go out, it'd be Booker T and the MG. There you go. Mm -hmm. Because I'm the only one left. With that group uh, having those instrumental hits, I mean, it must have been a surprise to you. I mean, there's there's no vocalist, and you probably never never enlisted a vocalist at any point, right? Green Onions was definitely an accident, and it never stopped. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, think, yeah. I think they were all accidents. Yeah. So there's a lot of songs that we cut that didn't come out. And then uh, after uh, Concord had purchased the label, uh, and they had all these tracks in there, they asked me to rename them and tell, tell them what I thought about them. So they got all these old tracks out that had no names at all. Oh, wow. <laughs> they put an album. So, okay. Yeah. How'd you, how'd you come up with those names? They just fall out of the air and you just go. <laughs> <laughs> He's a songwriter. He uses his imagination. I'm a title guy. I've been one all my life. So I've got a whole bunch of titles right here. <laughs> and if I go to write with somebody, I pull out the desk the night before and I, I'll look at that title. I said, that'd be a good one we can write. That'd be one. That'd be, you know, I'll take three or four titles with me and that'd be it. I wanted to ask you about producing, uh, specifically John Prine. You worked with now the late John Prine. Well, let's put it this way. John was not as easy as everybody might think. 
Yeah. He wrote great songs. He had he knew in his head what he wanted, so you let him do with it. So to produce John, you just let John be John. You didn't mold him into something that he wasn't. You didn't try to do that. I mean, as a producer, you right. let him be himself. Right. So I've always said everybody needs a producer, uh-huh. and I do too. So I, you know, I, I put myself in that same barrel. But some some artists, you have to more mold what you would like for them to do. You look at their raw talent, and you say, "This would be good over here. This would be good over there." Da, da, you know. So you're like giving them advice to an extent, right? Yeah, you try to, you, you know, and then they go for it. And the thing is about a producer, about I know I can only relate to the way I produce. When I hear a song, I don't hear just a raw song. I hear that first, yes, but I also at the same time hear it completed. So you work your way towards the end and get it completed. When it, and that's why I follow one all the way from the day it's written to the day it's mixed, mm-hmm. if I can. Mm-hmm. Now, every now and then, I, I can't name any offhand, that are all done in a full form with a full band, horns and embellishment or whatever it may be. And you hear that and you say, that'd be a good cover song mm-hmm. or song to do or something that's never been out. Mm-hmm. And there, I, I give credit to the artists to this extent. There have been a few songs that have been cut three or four or five times and never hit. And then a guy does it and it's number one record. Hmm. So that that tells me it's got to be the artist that has something to do with that. The song was already there, but the way his performance and the way he handled it made it the hit. So mm-hmm. it works all different ways. And there are other singers, if you give them a hit song, you can give that song to anybody. And they'd have to give it. Interesting. Bulletproof. There you go. <laughs> What's interesting to me, Steve, though, is you've worked with some ornery people, <laughs> the, the, collaborating with you know with Wilson Pickett, for example. He had a reputation as being really difficult. How how did you manage to get along with him? So I'll tell a quick story about Wilson Pickett. About two or three days before we were going to record him, Eddie Floyd and I were writing a lot of songs for different artists, and so we wrote a song, a little song called Six Three Four Five Seven Eight Nine. And the way that came about was I go to the Lorraine Motel. He opens the door and said, Cropper, I got a great idea for a hit. I said, what's that? I want to write a song about my girlfriend's phone number. So we worked on <laughs> an hour and just couldn't make that rhyme or sing. And so I took a, a pencil and a pad off of the nightstand in the room we were in and set myself in the corner and kept coming up with combinations of numbers until they went up, down, up, down, up, down. So yeah, you know, I made it a little demo I pick up Wilson at the airport, bring him to the studio because we want him to hear this song first. Said, Eddie and I have written you. We think a pretty good song for you. So Eddie hands him a sheet of lyrics and we go up to the control room and I put the tape up. The next thing I know, there's a wad of paper going across the room and Wilson getting hit with a flying tackle. And these two <laughs> big monsters are wrestling in the control room. I went, oh boy, the session's off. Everything is off. <laughs> so they get through wrestling and Wilson says, Drop me off at the hotel when you can in a motel work. So I do it. I got been back to the studio maybe a half an hour. I get a call. He says, what time are we riding tonight? What I found out later was that them scuffling around the floor and all that, they've been doing that since they were kids. Oh, really? So Wilson wads the song up and throws it across the room and said, that's a piece of crap. <laughs> that's why he got hit with a flat tackle. But he did it just to aggravate Eddie. Yeah. You know, he knew he liked it. That night we wrote nine and nine and a half. The next day we cut both and both were chart records and number one records. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Right here at home. All you got to do is pick up your telephone and dial now. Six, 
You know, we're in Chicago, Steve. We'd be remiss if we didn't ask you about Blues Brothers. Okay. What, what do you remember what? about that experience that made you a star <laughs> of the screen? So Too many memories to remember. We don't have four or five days. Yeah. <laughs> what stands out? If you had somebody say, well, what's, what's the one thing that, that during that craziness? Uh, you know, there's a good new documentary about Belushi that really illuminates that period. You know, he apparently disappeared for hours at a time. Where's John? Where's John? He would just go to somebody's house in the neighborhood. Well, that's a true story. Yeah. I don't know who went and got him. Somebody said Danny did. Somebody said Jim did. I don't remember Jim being on the set. That particular night, he knocks on the door and says, man, I got to crash. <laughs> so he crashed on the couch, and he's down about five minutes and says, you ain't got a beer or something, have you? <laughs> <laughs> but the love of music was genuine for him, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. He really loved his music and blues, especially. He had one of the largest blues collections of anybody I've ever seen. I'd never seen one like that. Hmm. I mean, he had hundreds and hundreds of CDs that were all blues records. Mm-hmm. That blew me away. We had to explain that to a few people writing about the movie and all. Yeah. What are you and Doug Dunn doing working with these two clowns from Saturday Night Live? So, yeah. Wait a minute. We're not clowns. Belushi grew up fronting a band, playing drums and singing. Yeah. And I said, that's actually Ackroyd playing harmonica. He didn't fill in for somebody or pantomime. He's actually playing. I said, he is? Yeah. So that's what I remember. And if they say, is there anything funny? I said, yeah. The band picked us up to do choreography for a scene we were in. And so we we get to the sound stage and pile out, and Danny's out front going, shh, shh, it's asleep. <laughs> <laughs> so another time he was out partying or whatever, knew knew we had to work the next morning. So he, he goes, he knows to the studio we were in the sound stage, and he just crashes on the floor. <laughs> it's asleep. I love that. Oh, wow. wow. He'd be there, right? You know what I loved about the, the Blues Brothers movie, though, uh, Steve, was the fact that, uh, it, it highlighted a lot of artists who were no longer in their primes, you know, John Lee Hooker or James Brown or yeah. Cab Calloway, and, and, and brought them some attention that I think uh, was well-deserved. I think it was really a beautiful thing what happened because of that movie. Yeah, I mean, so I will tell you a real funny moment for me. Aykroyd had rented a house, almost walking this, not quite, below me, and he said, he called me one day, and it was Danny, he said, how soon can you get down to my house? I said, I don't know, three or four minutes. He said, come on, get down here. So he met me at the front door, picked me up, set me in the couch, and took us out of him and stood in the middle of the living room and acted out that script. And I was belly aching. I mean, two minutes into it, I was belly aching. I didn't stop for two and a half, three. He said, what do you think? I said, what do you think? I'm rolling on the floor. It's so funny. You know, I've been in a few movies. I don't watch any of that stuff. Now, TV shows, guys couldn't wait to get back to the room to watch watch themselves on TV. Not me. I did it earlier in a couple of them. And I said, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm too critical of myself. I said, mm-hmm. I shouldn't have worn those shoes. I shouldn't have worn a shirt. I shouldn't have played that lick. I said, <laughs> shut <laughs> up. Go lay down somewhere. Just don't watch it. Doesn't listen to his own records. Well, I don't read my own press. Yeah. I mean, it's nice if somebody sends you something and you read it. You know, okay. But uh, you don't live by that. Yeah. You're only as good as your next song. That's right. how I look at it. That's true. You're only as good as your next session. Yeah. Keep doing it. We've been talking to the great Steve Cropper on Sound Opinion. Steve, uh, it's been an absolute honor to have you on the show. Thank uh, you so much. Thank you so much. Glad to do it, guys. Fire it up. <laughs> I want to get a bush hog now. Yeah.
That wraps up our conversation with Steve Cropper. And as always, we want to hear from you. What's your favorite song Steve's played on? Leave us a voice message with your opinions at our website, soundopinions.org. You know, Greg, we had a real great time talking to Steve Cropper, but there was so much ground to cover, we could have kept him for hours. We weren't able to drill down to some of our personal favorite tracks that he played on, or some that are really illustrative of his guitar genius. So we're going to take a moment now to share one more track each of his that we love. Why don't you go first? And I'm shocked. Shocked I am, because I see what you have in front of you, and it's not a Mavis Staples record. Well, I mean, he uh, produced a couple of Mavis Staples records, and he was a huge fan of the Staples singers. But no, I thought that might be too obvious. I wanted to dig a little (laughs) deeper. Uh, Mm -hmm. And there's a ton. I love Booker T and the MGs. I think, to me, they were the perfect rhythm section. They, They not only played on so many of those great stack songs, but their group material uh, on a string of albums that they released in the 60s and early 70s are uh, unfailingly great. Uh, that guitar tone that uh, Cropper had uh, is immediately distinctive. And I think um, in terms of when we talk about the great guitarists, this guy did more with fewer notes than any of them. Yeah. I mean, he, the, the man was a, an artist when it came to recognizing what the song needed. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that he was a songwriter. He served the song. You know, one of the great comments that um, Cropper made about himself, he's very incredibly self-effacing, I don't care about being center stage. I'm a band member. Always been a band member. And that's the way he approached everything. It was about what could make the song great. And if that meant playing fewer notes or playing no notes at all on his guitar and just leaving space in the arrangement to breathe. That's what he did. He didn't have to show off. And so that made every note count in a way that was um, really significant. Uh, with Booker T and the MGs, I mean, are there any bad Booker T and the MGs tracks? I'm trying to, <laughs> haven't found one yet. They're pretty great. But I did try to go a, a layer or two deeper and, and, uh, and highlight this track, Bootleg. Uh, this is a 65 instrumental with the band, the original lineup, Louis Steinberg was still playing bass on this track. He mm. left the band and Duck Dunn replaced him. But this is a terrific example of what they were able to do so well. You know, a lot of people don't think about Cropper as using a lot of distortion, but this track has a lot of fuzz on it. It's got mm. some, you know, Cropper playing some of the roughest guitar, and I mean that in a very complimentary way that he ever has. And it is a minute and 59 seconds of funky perfection. This track, this this does not get you moving uh, in a very precise and concise way. As you said, uh, I don't know what will. Uh, This is Booker T and the MGs with uh, Bootleg with the great Steve Cropper on guitar. Leg by Booker T and the MGs. Greg, you know, I'm going deep for my pick, too. Uh, after Otis Redding's death, the album that, that came out not long after, he died in December 67, uh, that June 68, uh, the immortal Otis Redding came out. And um, there's a great track on it uh, that really stands out, nobody's fault but mine, uh, not one of the top 
20 that people would go to when they're talking about Otis, but it is on many guitarist shortlists of the tracks that best illustrate Steve Cropper's genius. Uh, I got to give a shout out to a YouTuber, a guitar geek dad kind of guy, Josh Smith, who uh, took apart some of the uh, uh, songs that he considered the five greatest by Steve Cropper. It, it's always illustrative to uh, to get an eloquent guitarist talking about why a part worked. Now, obviously, on this song, Cropper introduces it with some stunning guitar. Just mm-hmm. the beginning, right? It's it's almost flashy, except that it's simple. All right, now that's the intro. There's no way that a song that starts that good is going anywhere bad, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Listen then, as the horns come in, the cropper really pulls back, and he's just playing this quarter note chop, 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 chop rhythm, right? And then subtly, as the song develops, he begins to take that chop, chop, quarter note, just one chord, and work in a little of that riffage that we got up top, right? And then in the middle, he goes to pure rhythm guitar, right? And so you're seeing all the things that made him so valuable. At every turn in this standard blues song, you know, as standard as any song that Otis Redding is singing on and Al Jackson is drumming on, right, could be, he does the exact right thing at every point, never flashy, but nonetheless just incredibly impressive. But I was just a doggone fool Trying to be so doggone Nobody's fault but mine. Otis Red, did you know that song? I did, and uh, only because I'm a Steve Cropper fanatic, <laughs> you know. But it is a deep cut for sure. That's a deep one. What do we have on the show next week, Mister Cut? Next week, Jim, we have uh, Faye Milton, the uh, ferocious drummer in one of our favorite bands of all time, Savages, talking about uh, her commitment to activism, in particular climate change, and how musicians can get involved in turning that around. For more sound opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to sound opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. And speaking of sponsors, every week our show reaches hundreds of thousands of curious listeners from around the globe via podcast and on 150 public radio stations nationwide. If you'd like to learn more on how your business or organization can also reach this engaged and educated audience, you can email sponsor at soundopinions.org. That's sponsor at soundopinions.org. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, and our intern, Sol Delgadillo. Our social media consultant is Katie Cott. 